Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. All right, so we're in week two of our series, Afterlife, and we're asking the question, what happens after life? What happens after this life? Next week, we're going to have a message that you are not going to want to miss. This is one of those messages I truly believe it's going to build your faith. It's a message that's going to, I hope and pray, relieve some of those fears you might have. It's going to give you this great sense of anticipation of what's to come, and I'm hoping it's going to build an urgency in you to live for Jesus right now today. So don't miss next week. Today, we're talking about something that is extremely difficult. It's a difficult topic to discuss Today we're talking about the righteousness of God and the horrors of hell. Now the question is, why in the world will we talk about a place like hell? We have all sorts of images and and understandings of what hell is. Well, one of the reasons we're doing that is because the reality is there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there about what is the afterlife all about. And that's even true in Christian circles. And unfortunately it's because there is... Um, really, uh, Scripture calls it a famine for the Word of God that, that we don't know the Bible as well as we could know today. That's why we here at LifePoint, we encourage you, be in the Word of God every single day. Know the Word of God. And so we want to share this partially because uh, we don't necessarily know what Scripture truly says. We might know what Hollywood says, or we might know, what, you know the jokes around you know, that we tell, and, oh, see you in hell, and all these kind of things. We might know that, what the movies say. But what does Scripture say? But also, why are we talking about this? Because as we've said, what you believe about eternity, what you believe about the afterlife, impacts and affects the decisions that you make right now, right here, today. And so we want to look at this because what you think about eternity, that impacts your life today and how you live. Now, regarding the topic of hell, According to a Pew Research study, they discovered that 74% of Americans believe in heaven and 50% of Americans believe in hell, which is just interesting. But here's what's fascinating to me. On the question of who's going to hell, don't look around, don't think of anybody right now. Who's going to hell? Of those surveyed, only one half of 1% of the people say they're likely to go to hell. That's kind of interesting. That says a lot. In other words, most people believe if there even is a hell, that's for them, for, you know, the really, really bad people. And most, so most people are never going to go there. But Jesus seems to imply otherwise. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this. He says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. Everybody say narrow. Narrow. Through the narrow gate. The highway to hell, which isn't just a song, it's here in scripture also. (laughs) The highway to hell, or the NIV says, the road that leads to destruction is broad. Everybody say broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. In other words, there's a lot of people, Jesus says, they're on the wrong path. They're on a wide path that's leading to destruction. And then Jesus said this in verse 14, he said, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few people find it. 
So I want you to think about this for a minute. If you're the devil, what strategies would you use to convince people to, to try, or, or not to convince them, but to try to get people on the broad, wide road that leads to destruction? What strategies would you use? Well, of course, the first thing you would do is try to convince people there's no such thing as hell, right? Over half our country doesn't even think it exists. And of those who think it exists, the next thing is the strategy he's going to use is if you even believe that it exists, to convince you that nobody's really going there. Less than 1% of the people even think that they would be going to a place like hell. And so that the devil can convince us of that, he knows people are going to end up living their life however they want that they're going to live for self, that they're not going to give any thought to this idea of sin. They'll justify their sin. In fact, they'll take it a step further and say, sin doesn't even exist. They'll reject Jesus. And then they will live their life for themselves with never having a real sense of awe before a holy and awesome God. Finally, what would the devil do? Well, he's going to try to convince you to doubt God. What do I mean by that? Well, he's going to get you to think, hey, if God is a good God, he would never send somebody to a place like hell. If he is a good God, he wouldn't even create something like a hell if he's a good and loving God. Maybe you think that. Maybe you used to think that. Or maybe you know people who think that, and maybe those are people you're praying for and trying to reach with the gospel of Christ, and this is one of their hang-ups. But here's the question for you. Will you turn to the Scripture and will you trust what God's Word says? Or are you going to choose to recreate God into a God that that makes sense to you and to the way you want to think or believe? That's a question we all have to wrestle with, taking us back even to our previous sermon series called Not God Enough. Are you going to trust the Scriptures? Or are you going to recreate God into a God who's loving but could never allow something like hell? Now, for those who will choose to trust God's word, we see that hell exists for quite a few different reasons. We're going to try to make it simple and just uh, kind of summarize it with two ideas. The first is this, is that according to scriptures, hell exists as a way for God to deal righteously with Satan. Satan or Lucifer or the devil, the fallen angel, whatever term you want to use for him, he isn't some harmless dude in a red suit with a cape and a pitchfork and, you know, and a little tail. That's not who he is. The devil is the embodiment of all that is evil. Behind every, think about this, behind every addiction is this enemy of ours. Behind all abuse, every bit of fear, all shame, all pain, man, he's behind all of that. It all comes from the devil. And in Scripture, we know, uh, we know at least in culture, there's a lot of different terms used for him, but also in Scripture, he's called different things. He's called the destroyer, the deceiver, the dragon, the dark angel. He's called our adversary. He's called the tempter. He's called our enemy. He's called the wicked one, and he's also called the thief. He's the father of lies, Scripture says. He's the prince of darkness. He's the angel of the abyss. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said that he is the thief who has come to kill, steal, and destroy us. That's his goal. So hell exists for God to deal righteously with this fallen angel called the devil. And when God brings about his final judgment upon the earth, 
John describes it this way in Revelation chapter 20. He says, This devil who deceived the people was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So why does hell exist? Hell exists for God to deal righteously with this fallen angel called the devil. But there's another reason that hell exists. It's also for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. And this is really where the conversation gets a little complicated for us, right? We're okay with the idea of, okay, if there's a hell and God created it and there's a fallen angel called the devil and all the destruction he does, okay, good. God send him there. We, we're, we're good with that. But now it gets complicated. Well, wait a second. This is for God to deal righteously with unbelievers because now we start thinking, oh my goodness, God, that doesn't seem fair. God, I have some neighbors and they are really good people. In fact, God, these na- all these neighbors of mine, they're so good. They're better than a lot of Christians I know right? And these are good people. How? There's no way that a loving God would send these good people that I know to hell. Why would a loving God do that? Again, that's a question you might have had, you might be dealing with, or you know people. That's a big question for them. Here's what's interesting as you you begin to think through this logically. I imagine most of us here that we would want justice to be served if some injustice has been done, right? I mean, if you think through that, if, if an injustice has been done, you want somebody to pay the consequences for that injustice. And yet the same people who argue for justice here on earth, and rightfully so, those same people, many of them believe that God should only be a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. In other words, we want justice here and now on earth. But when it comes to eternity, we want God only to be a God of love and grace. A little bit interesting if you think about it. Remember in our last series, Not God Enough, we talked about people remaking God into a God that will enable them to live the way they want to live, to make the choices that they want to make, to recreate a God who is always loving, is always generous, is always forgiving, no matter what I do on this side of heaven, no matter what sin I may commit. But what do we know about the God of the Scriptures? What do we know about the true God? We know that it is impossible for God to be holy without also being just. A holy God is a just God. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. It's all part of God's nature to be holy and to be just. And so hell exists for this holy God to deal righteously, to deal justly with our sin, with those who've who've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who've not embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior because he's the one who saves us from the consequences of our sin. Scripture puts it this way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says this. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. It's certainly no fun to talk about this topic. I'm sure it's not fun to hear. It hasn't been fun talking about it three services in a row. But here's the reality. If you and I don't accept this idea, this place, 
what the Scripture has to say about something called hell. If we don't accept that, we will never be able to appreciate the goodness and the grace and the love of God. I want you to think about this. The gospel is the good news. The word gospel means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason it's good news is because the bad news is so awful. It's because the bad news is so tragic. The bad news is incredibly bad. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to give us a brief glimpse into the afterlife as told by Jesus in Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, physically go into your Bible, Luke 16. If you don't have those, you can go on your phone to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along there. The bad news we're going to discover is really bad, which in turn makes the, the gospel, the good news, incredibly good. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. I need everybody to say purple. And fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now when Jesus said this, everybody understood what he was talking about. You and I don't necessarily, we hear that word purple. That's why I had you say purple. You just kind of, okay, he's wearing purple. Big deal. What's the big deal? Well, the people who are listening to the story for the first time, they really leaned in when Jesus said that. Because that meant that this guy was ultra rich. See, if you owned anything in purple back then, it meant anything of your clothing was purple, it meant that you were incredibly wealthy because for something to be purple, there was a certain dye that that you had to get. And it was rare, and it was expensive, and it was hard to acquire. And only a few who were wealthy enough had the means to even acquire it. So having that color meant you were extremely rich So Jesus describing this guy, it'd be like saying to you and I, okay, I'm going to tell a story about the one percenters, right? There's a term we hear in our our culture today, the one percenters, the mega rich. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. So at his gate, of course, he's wealthy, he's rich, right? He's got gate around his house, around his compound. And there's this this man named Lazarus. So you got a rich guy and you got a poor guy begging. And notice it says, Lazarus was covered with sores. Now, I know just a little bit about that. Years ago, uh, I went on a mission trip to Calcutta, India. And we went and, part, and, and joined uh, um, and went and visited Mother Teresa's different homes that she had around the Calcutta region. One of the homes that we went to and, and worked at and ministered to for a day was a home in a region called Caligart. And Caligart was, was the home for the death and the dying. And so we were there for a day, and these people would come in, and if you know anything about the story of Mother Teresa and her sisters, is this home, they wanted to provide people a way to die with dignity. And so they would take them in, and they would be brought, or they would come in themselves, and so they would come there, and some would be restored, but very often they would eventually die. And, And so we were there this day, and our job really was to just care for them, to pray over them, literally to rub them, to try to get them to eat some food. And I can tell you, the majority of them had sores all over their body. So this image, when he tells us, I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's incredibly poor. He's living in the elements. He's potentially about to die soon. And it says, Lazarus was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Again, what does that mean? We're like, oh, okay, yeah, hey, he's got some scraps. We'll take it. But what does it specifically mean? Well, if you were extremely wealthy, 
one of the things that you would do is, is when you finished your meal and you tended to make a mess and, and when you were done, you would take your bread and you would wipe your hands with the bread. Kind of like absorb all the mess on your hands and whatnot. Your bread, you're so rich, you use bread as your linens. And so then the servants would take this, this you know, used up bread, they'd take the crumbs that fell on the floor and they'd, and they'd take it outside the gates of the wealthy. And there you'd have animals and you'd, uh, you, know, you had Lazarus thinking to himself, if I can just get some of those crumbs that the rich guy used that bread for washing his hands, maybe, maybe I'll be okay. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he, meaning the rich man, was in torment. Everybody say torment. Okay, so he's in torment. Now, let's pause for a moment. The audience is thinking as they're hearing this story, yeah, get that one percenter. Get that rich guy. He deserves to be tormented. Okay, so they're, they're really paying attention to the story. But secondly, what is Hades? Well, you hear that word, used or used. Perhaps it's a word you've used. We use it in different contexts and setting. What is Hades? Hades is the Greek word used in the New Testament that's equivalent to the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament called Sheol. So you have Hades and Sheol, same word. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. In fact, if you read your Bibles in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll still see that word Sheol used. So what is it? Let me tell you this. It is not, Hades is not hell. We'll talk about hell in a, in a moment. It's kind of a precursor to that. Hades, what is Hades? Hades is, literally means the abode of the dead. It's where people went prior to the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone who died went to Hades or Sheol. And we're going to see in a moment, it appears as if Hades is divided into two regions, two sections, if you will, and they're separated by a great distance. Let's pick up the story. Luke chapter 16, verse 23. In Hades, where he, meaning the rich guy, was in torment, this guy's hurting, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. So Abraham from the Old Testament. Abraham is far away with Lazarus by his side. So we have the rich man in Hades. We have Lazarus there as well. The rich man is suffering on one side, and it seems there's this big chasm separating the two sides, and way off in the distance, there's something that appears to be much more pleasant called Abraham's side here in this translation, called Abraham's bosom in the King James Version, and called uh, paradise in other places in Scripture. Verse 26, it tells us about this chasm that's been set in place, and you can't go from one side to the other. You can't cross over. So the rich man is in torment on one side. Lazarus is on the other side. He's not in torment and they can't cross over to the other side. That's Hades. Verse 24. So he, the rich guy, called out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus. Why? To dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. He's in some serious pain. I'm in agony in this fire. 
last week, we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So let's connect some of these dots. Prior to Jesus, when people died, they went to this place apparently called Hades or Sheol, this abode of the dead. But Scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and in other passages of Scripture that when Jesus died, he entered into Hades or Sheol. And some translations say he preached. Others say he declared his victory over the devil and over death through the shedding of his blood for humanity to cover the sins of all of humanity. The Bible also indicates in places like Ephesians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 7, and other passages, that when Jesus resurrected and when he ascended to heaven, he took with him this one side of Hades, the the side, Abraham's uh, bosom, if you will, Abraham's side, or, or called other places, paradise. He took this one side with him when he died, transferring the spirits of the righteous dead up to be in heaven to go from Hades to heaven, and all the others would remain on that other side until the great white throne judgment. (coughs) Quick summary, you're going to have to do much more digging in than I just said, or go back and listen to the message to kind of hear that again. But just a quick summary, again, for Jesus' followers, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord when we die. Scripture's clear. But for those who are without Christ, To be absent from the body is to be the beginning of eternal suffering. Revelation chapter 20 says, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And I just jumped ahead from Hades to this thing called the lake of fire. The lake of fire is what you and I would know as hell. As the rich man was in torment in Hades, Hell is much more so. It's a place of unending, unrelenting torment. Hell appears to be a place of complete isolation. It's called outer darkness, utter darkness, where there is no light ever. We know for certain there is no hope there. The angel described what would happen to those who don't receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. He said in Revelation chapter 14 that they will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. We kind of talked about wrath a few weeks ago. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb and the smoke of the torment will rise forever and ever. It sounds awful. It sounds terrible. Where do we get that imagery? Where do we get the imagery where these authors are trying to describe with words the absolute horror of hell? Well, the Greek word that's translated as hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Everybody say Gehenna. Gehenna. So you got a bunch of these words. you got Hades, Sheol, abode of the dead, and now you have this place called hell uh, called Gehenna. And what does that come from? Gehenna actually comes from a Hebrew word, Gehenom. And Gehenom was, was a very real place in Jerusalem. It was called the Valley of, of Hinnom. 
the Valley of Hinnom. And that was a place just outside the city walls on the, on the southwest side of the city. And that was basically the Jerusalem dump. And there at the Jerusalem dump, you would have the residents go there and they would take all their waste, all their trash, all their sewage. They would take dead animals. That's where they would, put, they would take criminals who had been crucified. And so in this place, the fire was always burning 24-7. You can imagine in a dump with fire perpetually burning, you have the, the maggots and the worms and the burning flesh, the smell beyond sickening. So the image you and I get in Scripture is that hell is this place, this nonstop eternal fire with torturous suffering, with unending pain. It's been called by commentators the land of no more good. Commentators say it's a place where there's no beauty, no laughter, no more peace, no more friendship, no more joy. There's no more hope. And catch this, there's no more second chances. And so that's why this rich man cried out to Lazarus, you know, from Hades, from the side where he was in torment. And he cried out to Father Abraham, and in Luke chapter 16, verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. Why? Because I have five brothers. And why do I want you to send them there? Notice what he says. Let him warn them so they, they will not also come to this place of torment. Please, please. Do something to save my family who are still alive. I love them. I don't want them to experience what I'm going through. And by Jesus telling us this story, you and I are getting insight into the afterlife. What happens after this life? For example, we see in this story that the rich man, he was fully conscious and aware. He has a memory of what's happened on earth. He has a memory of what he did and clearly what he didn't do. And he's experiencing a very real physical pain, but perhaps greater than the physical pain was his pain of regret, knowing that nothing could change for him and his future. To that point, we also see that the rich man's eternity was irrevocably fixed. There was nothing that he could do to change where he was. He couldn't reverse it. He recognized that his life was going to be this torment moving forward for the rest of eternity. And third, and I find this interesting, apparently as we look at the story, the rich man knew that his suffering was just. Track with me here. He knew that his suffering was just and fair. He complained about himself being in agony. But nowhere in this passage does he complain about the verdict of where he was sentenced to. Nowhere in the passage did he say, God, this isn't fair. He understood. Evidently, he had enough awareness. He had enough realization that the way he lived his life on earth, he wasn't right with God. He knew that enough to know. And so he accepted the righteous judgment, even though he's now in agony. And then fourth, we see in the story, this rich man, he begged and pleaded with somebody to, to help his family know God better. You see, he realized, man, 
tell my family about God and who God is. I live my whole life on the wide road. And I know my family and the way they're living. And they're living on the wide road as well. Tell them about the narrow road. Tell Somebody tell them to get right with God. Get their life right with God. I want them to repent. I don't want them to experience what I'm going through. I want you to think about this. The moment this guy, this rich man died, the moment he died, he realized, I blew it. Can you, I mean, think about that. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The moment you die is that moment you realize, oh my goodness, I wasn't right with God. And now all there is in store for me is unending suffering for all of eternity. Why would we talk about this? Why talk about a subject that's so hard, so difficult? It's hard to take in. It's hard to digest. Why? Because what you believe about the afterlife, after this life, what you believe about eternity absolutely impacts the way you live today, the decisions you make today. You and I are still alive. It's not too late for us to be on the right side of this conversation if we're not on the right side. It's not too late for those who maybe aren't on the right side of this conversation that we love and care about and we have influence with. It's not too late for them yet. Who wants you to not talk about this? Who wants you to dismiss this topic? Who wants to convince you that hell isn't real? Or if it is, it's no big deal. Who? Satan. The devil. Our enemy. He wants to convince you and I, don't take hell seriously. He knows if he can do that, if he can get you not to take this seriously, But man, you're going to live a more self-focused life. Your focus is going to be on comfort and rejecting sacrifice. That your focus is going to, you're, you're going to avoid persecution at all costs. And you will rarely, if ever, truly share your faith with those who don't know Jesus, who desperately need him. The devil's working on you. Don't take this seriously, he says. And the devil's also working to convince you that if God is real or if God is actually a good God, then he would never create a hell. He would never send people to hell. And that statement right there is where all the misunderstanding is. A good God would never send people to hell. Scripture says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says the heart. Everybody say heart. Our heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. So here's what I want you to think about. In comparison to God's holiness, God's goodness, in comparison to God and who he is, the truth is we're actually not good. We, we say, well, God would never send a good person to hell. What are you using to cut? What's your, your barometer for what's good? The only barometer is God and his holiness. And, and you and I, in comparison to God, we are not good. If we stood before a holy, perfect God, we would actually see and understand the depth of our wickedness. Now, I get it. We're good people. And it's, good, and it's fine to say that. Hey, they're, they're a good person. I get that, you know, in just talking with people. Theologically, looking at the big picture, what does Scripture say? And we're not good. 
Isaiah stood before God. He, he got caught up and saw the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, it says this. When he stood before God, when he's before a holy, awesome God, and this is Isaiah, incredible prophet, godly man. And he said this. Here's one translation. He said this, standing before God. Isaiah said, it's over. It's over for me. I'm doomed to destruction because I'm sinful. Because he was standing before a holy God. You and I, we don't have to be taught to sin. There's no classes on how to sin better. It's just, we inherited. It's in our, it's in our nature to sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 just says it this way. All have sinned. Every one of us. And it says we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of God's righteous standard. And so what we have coming to us, what we deserve, what we earn, Scripture says there, the wages of our sin, what we have, what we deserve, is death, eternal separation from God. God is holy, absolutely holy, which means he is just. So God must, by his very nature, he must deal with our unrighteousness. He must punish our wrongdoing. It's why there's a hell. It's a tough message. I get it. I understand. So how about we finish off with good news? You see, the good news is that God is just, and God is also love. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God showed his great love. God cared about us, loved us enough. God showed his great love by, for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So God said, man, I love you so much, I want to deal with your sin problem. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. God's great desire is to save us. So what did Jesus do at his death and at his resurrection? When Jesus died, it paid the price for our sins. Listen to this. It satisfied the justice of God. Jesus' death did. And simultaneously displayed the unending love of God. Because that's how good God is. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, Man, God loves us so much, He doesn't want any of us to die, any of us to perish. He wants all of us to come to life, to receive life, to be a part of His family. So I just ask you the simple question. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved? We don't usually add the second part to that equation, but in light of the message today, do you want to be saved from the horrors of hell? And I imagine there might be some in this room who you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ. You haven't yet received that incredible gift. Jesus, you received that gift and that gift satisfies God's justice against your sins. Why wouldn't you receive his gift? Invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord and be your Savior. I want to give you that opportunity right now. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.